Finding our timeless essence. In this episode, Eckhart talks about the sense of guilt which has plagued humanity through the centuries. He says, it's part of the ego's dysfunction, the feeling that not only is there something wrong with the world, there's also something wrong with me. Eckhart explains certain religious traditions have interpreted this as God's punishment. We believe somehow we are at fault when bad things happen. He says, this results in a heavy pain body, burdened by resentments, grievances, and also the sense of being a victim. Eckhart says there are ego identities based on faulty thinking. He believes what's needed is wisdom so we can free ourselves to find our true identity. Some traditions call it our Buddha nature or Christ consciousness. Eckhart says this aspect of us cannot be harmed by what has happened to us. It is not touched by suffering. He believes we must look inside to find this timeless essence that lives within each of us. Perhaps this is going to be the silent talk. Stillness speaks. It's a little paradox. I just realized that this title of the little book I wrote is a paradox. We talked about a belief, or more accurately, a living realization in all ancient indigenous cultures, a realization of the aliveness of the world beyond what we can see with our senses. So the anthropologists call that animism. A later term is panpsychism. Pan means all or everything. Psychism means it has aliveness in it, whatever you want to call, I call it consciousness. Everything is endowed with some degree of spirit or consciousness. Many religions of the world also have that in Hinduism and uh, certain forms of Christianity. There's an enigmatic term of the Trinity in Christianity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, You could interpret that as meaning the Father would correspond to God, the transcendent God, the One, the God, Godhead that does not exist in space and time, is transcendent to this dimension. The Son would be the realization of that reality within the human being. In esoteric Christianity, that would be called the Christ within. In certain schools of Buddhism, that is called your Buddha nature, your innate Buddha nature, that which transcends the conditioned personality. That is the inner realization of what on the outer level we can call, well, in Christianity, 
the Father, the transcendent Godhead. And then in between we have the Holy Spirit, which is that which pervades the universe, the emanation of God that pervades the universe, that is in everything. So we have the three, the inner realization that when it is known within the human, that is the, call it the sun in Christianity, or uh, Christ within, or Buddha nature. But of course, Buddha nature is the, the spirit that, that is within everything. So in Buddhism, they say, for example, they ask, does a blade of grass have Buddha nature? Yes, everything has Buddha nature. And so another term for that which pervades the universe, which is, of course, consciousness, is anima mundi. The Latin ancient term for the soul of the world, the soul of the world. So that is that which underlies all things we perceive in in this dimension. Behind it, there is a vast intelligence, but that can be realized within the human being. It's not a just a belief system or some kind of dogma. It's more than that. And once you realize that within, then and only then, even if you don't realize it fully, just glimpses of it, distant glimpses even, or more fully, and only then can you recognize it, sense it in the outer world. And that is, a, I call it sensing. It's kind of, depends how one uses language, feeling, sensing. Sensing, I believe, is the best word I can find. Uh, so you sense it in the outer world. The world is then no longer dead because it has been deadened by conceptualization in the human mind, excessive, excessive Thinking, thinking the most wonderful thing that enabled humans to do, do the most amazing things, also became a, a burden and something that was turning against humans when it became excessive. And then ex when it, the thinking became excessive, then humans began to derive their entire sense of identity, their sense of self from the movement of thought. And this is kind of where we are at now, where the world is perceived as devoid of intelligence, the external world, it is, has become deadened to our senses, to deeper senses, and then all kinds of dreadful things arise, like a sense of meaninglessness that can seep into millions of individual human beings, a sense of pointlessness of it all, a sense of nihilism or nihilism. Nothing makes sense, what's the point? And then all you can end up with is hedonistic pursuits, in other words, seeking temporary pleasures, 
which give very temporary satisfaction and then always end in more suffering and pain. And another one is associated with that is the seeking of power or whatever the, whatever the ego believes will satisfy it, satisfy you. You have become the ego then. But it's there's always this dreadful thing hiding behind every um, apparent achievement of the ego, that sense of pointlessness. That is now affected millions of human beings. It's not entirely new in the history of the human race. That sense of pointlessness already existed in certain individuals here and there. There's a book in the Bible, in the Old Testament, that is kind of an expression of that sense, probably been written, we don't know who the author was. Well, the book is called Ecclesiastes, and uh, it begins with a famous statement, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Vanity in the older sense of the word means pointlessness. So it will presumably be written by an old man who, <laughs> we assume, <laughs> who saw that everything is so short-lived and he describes all that in the book. It's beautifully written, it's a great work of literature uh, and it's a reflection of that state of consciousness. So basically he says just get out of life whatever you can because you're going to die and, and no matter what you achieve you're still going to die. So even if you achieve wisdom, you're still going to die, and it's all pointless anyway. But he writes in more beautiful language than I'm summarizing it here. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's funny how that book found its way into the Bible. <laughs> Somebody's wondering about the pointlessness of it all. <laughs> so that afflicted certain individuals here and there, but not vast numbers of, of people as it does now and um, a lot to do with it is the fact that um, in the mainstream culture the entire universe is regarded as a random coming together, an accidental coming together of atoms and molecules and then accidentally all this comes into existence. Then, of course, there is another uh, a religious theory that is there is that there is a that God regarded as a an architect or something like that who created it all. At some point, God created it all. And what he, did he do then? Then, so some people would say, well, he must have walked away after he created it all because if he were controlling things now, then that wouldn't make sense because I could do better than that. <laughs> so that happens when the belief is there's, a, there's a, an external creator who does it all and then according to some beliefs, he's still in charge of things, omnipotent, an omnipotent entity somewhere looking over things 
and traditionally the belief was that if uh, bad things happened, it's God's punishment. Uh, traditionally, not many people dared say, how dare you, God, punish us or punish me. They immediately said, it's our fault, I know. It's my fault, I know. That was that is the traditional approach. Even when I was a child, I was brought up as a, a Catholic. And in those early days, I believe, I seem to remember, the, the Mass was still, there's a lot of Latin in the Mass, which is very nice. And even as a child, a 10-year-old, we had to say, we had to beat our chest and say, mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa, mea culpa, my, my guilt, my blame, my, I am to blame. As a child, I tried to figure out what that was, why I was to blame for the... Uh, 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 <laughs> and at the age of 10 came the first communion, that is a big event in the life of, I don't know if it still is, in the life of a Catholic child. The first communion, and this, the first communion is preceded by the first confession of your sins in the cubicle, dark, dark cube, very scary. And, uh, and then before you do that, the day before or days before, you have to, uh, what was called, searching your conscience for your sins. And I took it more seriously, I remember, than other children, because other children were playing in the street saying, are you coming to join us? No, I was sitting at a table. I had stacked up books upright around me to hide my, the paper which I'm going to write down my sins. <laughs> but it took a lot, I really had to think very hard. Well, they must have done something really bad. I came up with a few minor things, and I even invented one or two because there wasn't enough on the paper. <laughs> <laughs> but um, a sense of guilt goes through the millennia of deep-seated guilt in the human mind, uh, and that is also part of egoic consciousness. The, the sense of not only is there something wrong with the world, there is something wrong with me, too. Even more fundamentally, that sense, which is part of egoic consciousness, is the sense there is something fundamentally wrong with me. However, in religious terms, it expresses itself as this. It's immediately saying, we deserve your punishment, God, because we feel bad. I feel so bad, I deserve what I'm getting. <laughs> and that's the, that is the feeling of guilt. So whenever a disaster happened in the in past, a natural disaster, earthquake, pestilence, the Black Death, or all the most dreadful things that happened, floods, fires, volcanic eruptions, whatever it may be, humans immediately said, they didn't say, how dreadful this is, why is this happening? No, the, God is punishing us for our sins. We deserve it. It's our guilt. We need to atone. And then came global warming. And then bad things happened, perhaps through that. 
And who knows, perhaps for the first time, when humans say, we caused all this, it's our fault, maybe for the first time they're right. <laughs> <laughs> through the dysfunction created by the egoic consciousness uh, that brings about a lot of havoc on every level in the human life, on the individual level and the collective level. So all these are things that we can now be transcended. We don't need a feeling of guilt, just a clear, we need wisdom we can let go of guilt as we let go of egoic consciousness. Guilt also disappears because guilt is on an individual level. It means that you have done something bad in the past. At that time, you didn't know that it was bad, we presume. You did it because this was a manifestation of your level of consciousness at that time. Then you become a bit more conscious, then you look back on their past and say, oh, I did that. And that can easily become, develop into a feeling of strong guilt, which strengthens the ego. In, the, in other words, you transform human unconsciousness as it manifested through you at that time. You transform the human unconsciousness into an identity. So you, you manufacture an identity for yourself out of that and say, that's me, I am a bad person. So it's equating unconscious action with identity. And then again, that becomes a, a, another heavy part of the egoic identity. Many people carry a sense of individual guilt about something they did or failed to do but should have done in the past and they cannot let go of, I'm sp speaking, I know that quite a few people usually ask me questions about that so this is, will be relevant to quite a few people, for quite a few people. They, so they, they carry an identity around not recognizing what you manifested was human unconsciousness at the time, but you recognize, you know that it was, it created suffering in some way to other humans or whatever. And yet, to transform that into an identity is a mistake. It keeps you trapped in egoic consciousness. But this also applies to other people. If other people did something bad, then what is called Guilt, then that becomes, you have a resentment or grievance towards somebody else. And again, it, it is quite likely that whatever happened at that time, almost certainly it was perpetrated by a human being who was, maybe he, she still is now, if they're still alive, who was unconscious, forced by the egoic the, the dysfunction of the egoic self to perpetrate that. And again, the danger is if we equate the unconscious action of another, if we may, uh, make an identity for the other out of that, that is also a trap for the ego again. So whether you do it to yourself, 
in which case it is guilt, a guilt-ridden sense of self, or somebody else did something to you, and then you have a, you are burdened with a sense of deep resentment or grievance, or, or a sense of having been a victim of somebody, and then you adopt a victim identity, which again is a very strong egoic identity. So you see yourself as a victim, you think of yourself as a victim of this or that event or those actions. But those are all egoic identities. You can recognize what somebody did in the past, and you may not. Forgiveness is something we need to be very careful with because it's often used in a superficial sense. People say you need to forgive yourself for something you did, and they say you need to forgive somebody else for what they did, and then sometimes people say, I forgive you, but how deep does it go? Perhaps they have an image of themselves as quite spiritual, and then that's what they say corresponds. They want to simply to reinforce the image they have of themselves as a spiritual person who does not harbor resentment. I'm too spiritual for resentment. I forgive you, you're fine. Uh, uh, But deep down they're still... Many uh, negative emotions, when you have a strong self-image of a particular kind, for example, spiritual or religious, you have that, this is who I am, and then it can easily happen that you deny certain things that, that contradict your belief in who you are. <laughs> They're the exact opposite of your belief of being a spiritual or religious person. There are many cases that happened over many centuries to many religious people. Impossible to recognize the negative emotions within themselves because they would have conflicted with their self-image. And if you then repress them, they get even worse. And then they come out in bursts of extreme anger or even violence. (laughs) Even that is justified then by the egoic mind. So the unconscious parent who beats their child in a a rage, but who thinks of themselves as spiritual, say, I'm doing it for your own good. So they reinterpret what they are doing, which is bad, they reinterpret it so that it fits in with their self-image as a good person. <laughs> so you lie to yourself continuously. <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> so all these things happen because there's lack of awareness. And there's a, you're looking for an identity and you're grasping some, wherever you can find the, your, your identity in the past, you're grasping at some things, uh, certain memories, images, so you haven't found your deeper identity, which is the indwelling consciousness itself. And then you need some substitute identity. 
so these are all cases where people have substitute identities, they have conceptual identities of who they are, and basically you live in a kind of, in your own matrix, <laughs> conditioned my egoic mind, and you cannot see reality, you can't see what you are doing, Jesus said the famous words on the cross, forgive them for they know not what they do. What he means, of course, maybe if, he, if it had been in recent times, he would have expressed it slightly differently. He would have said, forgive them for they are totally unconscious. Now the forgiving, the real forgiving happens when you recognize that there is a dimension in you that has not been affected by whatever happened to you, whatever anybody did to you. There's a dimension in you, uh, which is why we're here, to access that more deeply. And again, whether we call that the stillness, the consciousness itself, the unconditioned consciousness, or if you are religious, Christ consciousness, the Christ within, the inner Christ, the inner Buddha, Buddha nature, whatever you want to call it. There is something that actually cannot be touched by anything that happens to you as a person. As a person you can suffer a lot in this world. And some people suffer more than others, but everybody suffers. As a person you suffer. As a human you suffer the being beyond the human, because as you know, you're a human being, the being beyond the human is actually not touched by suffering. So you have to find that, that timeless essence that is within you, that is the inner aspect of what we call the, the world soul, which also the world's soul also is beyond suffering. And the world's soul continuously creates and recreates, although things die all the time. The world's soul, there have already been four, I can't remember, four or five mass extinctions on the planet over millions and millions of years when each time life on the planet became 80% destroyed, 70%, even 90% on one mass extinction on the planet. Almost all life forms wiped out. And you would say this is definitely the end. But it wasn't the end. The planet regenerated. After several mass extinctions, it regenerated. Again, just took a while. Not too long, just a few million years. It regenerated, and then the life that then arose was of an even greater complexity of life forms. There was something that could not be destroyed. Even when the meteorites hit, they say the last extension perhaps was when the dinosaurs became extinct. A huge meteorite hit the planet and led to an extinction of life, um, a lot of most of life on the planet. But there was something beyond it. There was this planetary intelligence, anima mundi is the soul of the world, but one aspect of the larger soul of the world is the soul of the planet. 
the soul of the planet is an aspect of the world soul and your soul is an aspect also of the world so they're not separate so the planet is a life form that has its own intelligence which is an aspect of the, the one intelligence and out of that the recreation happens again and again and each time chaos erupts and destroys it a higher order develops out of the chaos which is not to say that we should welcome the next extinction that we perhaps create so we should it is our task to, to learn to recognize again the sacredness of life on the planet that is vital part of the awakening of human consciousness at the very beginning of the course in miracles there are two or three sentences that are supposed to summarize the whole course if you understand those and the course in miracles is the same length as the bible so it's a lot to read and to, a long very long if you understand those two or three sentences at the beginning you don't need to read the rest so that's good and so the summary of the course in miracles according to that is as follows nothing real can be threatened nothing unreal exists herein lies the peace of God can you say that again <laughs> Nothing real can be threatened. Nothing unreal exists. Herein lies the peace of God. I'm not going to explain it now. I'll let you to figure it out for yourself. You have enough wisdom. So that's a very deep statement. So ultimately, all the form... Oh, I'm beginning to explain it now. <laughs> Since I've started, I might as well finish. <laughs> Ultimately, all the forms of life that you see are only the forms of life, including your physical form and even your psychological form. They are forms of life, but not life itself. Life itself is indestructible, and life itself can be equated with consciousness itself. Consciousness itself, which is, is the essence of every life form, and the essence of every life form cannot be destroyed. Only the, the outer, what, what we perceive as the outer form, of course, is very fragile and is subject to impermanence and its existence is very fleeting. So in those terms then the only, the only absolutely real thing is that which gives life to everything and that cannot be destroyed. Which is not to say that it should, we should disrespect the forms of life. It is very important that we come into a relationship of reverence and love with the natural world because after all it's a another manifestation of who you are who or what you are in your essence so you always 
when you recognize more deeply other life forms and you recognize, you sense the inherent aliveness in these life forms, that recognition is a form of love, real love. And that is of vital importance to come to that realization. So what you love is, well, there's a Christian expression. It's not an, it's not absolutely ideal expression. It's not absolutely right, but it's an approximation of the truth. So the Christian expression is, what you don't love the creature, you love the creator in the creature. <laughs> so what you love in the creature is the creator of the creature, but it's not really the creator, it's the essence of the creature. So in ultimate terms, then, if you want to use theistic language, what you love in the other is ultimately always God. <laughs> so that's when you love a form of life, what you really love is God hiding, having taken on the temporary disguise of that particular form of life, God, or rather the emanation of God, which is consciousness. I don't the consciousness that you are, that you can sense at this very moment as the essence of your being. Do we ask, is that God? Well, yes and no. It's in the, you can't ask the same question of whether the light of the sun is the sun or not. The light of the sun that hits your skin and we can feel its warmth and the life-giving energy of the sun that is the very warmth in your body is derived from calories which is derived from sun energy so we are here physically because of the sun and the rays of the sun that reach us are they the sun yes and no they obviously they are connected to the sun they come there's a oneness but in the same way the consciousness that animates all life forms, including you here, is an emanation of that one that is ancient cultures regarded the sun as God because it is a, the closest analogy you can have except that God is, has no physical existence in space and time. It's a trans, the transcendent one of which we can say nothing but we cannot imagine or visualize anything. It's the transcendent one that emanates consciousness, which is the light of God, into this dimension. And in this dimension, there is a, an evolutionary process, whereas God itself is beyond time. So when, if you say, is consciousness God? Well, yes and no, in the same way that you say, is the light of the sun that I can feel, is that this, am, am I feeling the sun now? In, in a way, yes. But there's still a huge difference between the actual, the sun, which is of inconceivable energy, can't even imagine, and the, and, and the sunlight that you feel. So yes and no. The consciousness then, the closest I can get to it is to say, it is an emanation of God, and it's still one with God. So you are an emanation of the one. So what you can sense in yourself as consciousness is the light of God. And this is why Jesus said, you are the light of the world, because you are 
consciousness. So that frees you from the absurd belief that all there is to you is a, this little person with its little problems and its short past and its short future. That's, that's all that's me. That's, oh, that is not very satisfying in me. Oh, I feel that there's more to you than that and there's a deeper dimension to who you are. This dimension of who you are is the, the, the consciousness of the universe. <laughs> and uh, we think of ourselves as entities, but ultimately we're not entities, we are processes. One could go so far as to say that all nouns that we use, like tree, table, flower, whatever, earth, all nouns are actually uh, a misperception that, uh, that they are separate entities, whereas in reality there's a web of interconnectedness. The entire universe is one being in this web of interconnectedness. So ultimately there are no things, nouns. <laughs> Everything is a verb. Everything happens an event rather than a thing. And here, these events unfold in what we call time in this dimension. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Eckhart Tolle, Essential Teachings, the podcast. You can follow these essential teachings on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you haven't yet, go to Spotify and follow this podcast. Join us next week for more enlightened teachings from Eckhart Tolle. Thank you for listening. <laughs>